Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and and Apple Podcasts. at RMIT University and I'm joined today by, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah sure, Sahil Basin, National General Manager of uh, Roscon who specialise in expert reports but today we're talking about the subject of cladding. Flammable cladding, is that what we call it? Technically what is, <laughs> what is this material that is cladding? Well, cladding per se is um, a dirty word to start with because cladding could be anything. Glass windows are cladding, bricks are cladding, weatherboards cladding. So we're specifically talking about two products, one being aluminium composite panels. So you'll hear of that as ACP and the other being expanded polystyrene being EPS. And they are the two flammable uh, materials that the authorities and obviously all fire engineers and other experts are concerned about. And what's the background? Why did these materials start getting used and how did attention turn to them? Sure, so aluminium composite panel is a very striking product. Architects love the product. Developers like the product because they can um, erect a building quicker. Um, It's great for building because it's lightweight. Um, It's watertight, it's got a lot of great properties, but one of the properties that it's also got is a core in the middle. It's like a a sandwich type product, so it's shiny on the outside, shiny on the back, and filled with a layer in the middle, which is highly flammable if you've got the wrong variety. And uh, essentially all the uh, varieties are flammable. It's not just, there's three varieties that you can get. One is a 100% polyethylene product, one is a 30% polyethylene, 70% mineral, then the other one is 90% mineral with a 10% polyethylene content. Now, one is described as combustible, which is the 100% polyethylene. Then you've got the fire retardant, which is the one in the middle, 70% mineral. Then you've got a non-combustible, which is the 90% mineral. However, the problem is all three of them fail the Australian standard, which is um, Australian Standard 1530 Part 1, which was designed in 1994 and it was essentially made for bricks and concrete tilt panels because that's all we used to use back then in construction so and the standard is some kind of uh, you put it in an oven or something and see if it burns correct so you put it in uh, a furnace for around 30 minutes at around six or seven hundred degrees and lower it into a furnace and it's uh, the product should withstand that temperature however the problem arises is that anything that you put into a furnace that hot just disintegrates so the most uh, or the best product that you can buy, the non-combustible variety um, with the 90% mineral content uh, combusts in about five seconds after it's put into the furnace and it should be in there for 30 minutes. So um, that's a CSIRO based test and there's other companies that do the test as well. However, you can look at that online. The, the words non-combustible and fire retardant are essentially words that have been made up by the suppliers themselves. It's marketing spin. All the products are combustible. So that's the aluminium composite panel and then you've got the expanded polystyrene. So the expanded polystyrene first started off in Australia around 20 years ago in the outer suburbs and was predominantly used in second story developments. So the first story would always be brick or a masonry product or a concrete tilt panel and the upstairs would be um, polystyrene and the reasons for that were quite similar where it's lightweight You can erect a whole wall in around 30 minutes rather than bricking it over three or four days. 
Um, to give you an idea, you can erect your entire upstairs of a domestic dwelling, a two or three bedroom house in a number of days, rather than taking three or four weeks to brick up. And um, the, the, structural, uh, the structure of it does not need to be as strong, so the foundations aren't as deep, reducing costs. It's all related to cost and effectiveness. And it worked for upstairs stories, so second stories. However, um, having it on the ground story is um, a recipe for disaster because you have water ingress. It's like putting an esky lid sideways and expecting it to stop water. It doesn't work. I've never tried that, maybe <laughs> But um, the other thing is, is that people have barbecues on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we deem that as an ignition source. Um, you've got people smoking on ground levels. So that's why the top story worked, because it was out of sight, out of mind. It was rendered. We haven't seen the actual water leak syndrome in Australia yet because we haven't used it long enough. To give you an example, the New Zealand government demolished 14,000 homes um, and called it leaky building syndrome. And that's the same that's going to happen in Australia because developers have gone from having it just on the top story to now in the outer suburbs having it on the top and bottom stories and rendering it. So a consumer would think that they're buying a solid brick home back in the day that was rendered but we cut it open in front of them with a Stanley knife because it's just polystyrene and they almost cry in front of you. Um, So I've had a number of cases of that and it's very sad to see um, consumers go through that when they think think they're buying a product that's going to be there for their lifetime and other generations to come and uh, it is just going to disintegrate in 20 or 30 years. So to clarify, we have a product that doesn't meet Australian standards but for reasons of its uh, cheap looks good in some fashion etc it's become very widespread could you give an idea of just how widespread it is and how we've come to the point where now we realize or now we've decided that it it doesn't meet the standards so in terms of the standard documents for many products come from overseas with the product when it's delivered now them testing i'm not going to really comment of how it's tested but Most building surveyors look at a document that says it's been certified to X standard and they take that as being certified. Only since the fires have occurred have people actually started saying, you know, we need to have a look at what kind of products on our building, what type of the three have we got, and let's start testing it. And that's when they've discovered all of them are failing the Australian standard. So that's with aluminium composite panels. With expanded polystyrene, it's another problem where it's legally allowed to be used on homes that are up to two or three storeys. However, now developers, like I was um, saying, are using it for entire dwellings, which is still acceptable. However, the next step comes in is where developers are using it for high-rise construction or medium density. And that's the problem that we face around Victoria, is that we've got a lot of buildings out there with expanded polystyrene used for the entire construction and you know there's some buildings 10 stories some buildings higher and it's legally only allowed to be used up to three stories Um, and the national construction code clearly says that any buildings over three stories is a type a construction has to have a non-combustible facade and um, so you know we can blame the building surveyor as well they don't like being blamed however um, you can't say that i looked at a certificate because um, you shouldn't be allowing that product to be used for the building facade. So how many buildings are affected in that in that way do you think? Um, there's thousands and the reason I say there's thousands is that the 
the government started a campaign where they mentioned that there was 1,400 odd buildings that were identified. Um, that, in my view, is not correct, and it was marketing spin to try and uh, to try and appease consumers to say we haven't got that much of a problem. However, we've got a huge problem, and I'll explain why. The, the data was used from the Victorian Building Authority. The VBA themselves have only been around for the last 10 years or so. Before that, it was called the Building Commission. Um, it got close for corruption and other, and other matters that are on the public record. And there's essentially no data prior to the VBA being around. And even when this data gets submitted to the VBA, the building surveyor normally just submits an occupancy permit and submits um, the minimal requirements to satisfy the VBA requirements. You don't have that many building surveyors submitting what type of handles were used, what desks were put in, what cladding was used. It just does not happen. The other reason I think it's a little bit fabricated is that there was a list of around 1,200 government buildings which really didn't get mentioned there as well. And the, that's, that was a separate audit. And as I understand it, the cladding task force is based in a building that has cladding. Correct, Nicholson Street. So they've actually moved. They've just moved right. to Spring Street. Um, and that was because I... I don't really want to play on this, but there was an actual fire in the building around a month ago. So they moved to Spring Street. Um, but the Nicholson Street building is 100% wrapped in aluminium composite panels, which is uh, quite a coincidence. But Also commercial buildings, is that another... another? Yeah, so where I was heading at is yeah. that there's a list of 1,200 buildings that are part of the government, which are on top of the 1,400 buildings. However, commercial buildings haven't even started to be looked at yet. And uh, we've only got certain classes of buildings. So without mentioning the classes, because the consumers probably won't understand, but to, to make it easy, nursing homes, aged care centres, hospitals and places where people reside, like uh, residential buildings, have been looked at. Places like commercial buildings haven't been looked at. So to give you an idea... Um, they may comply, but just to give you some idea as a disclaimer, if you have a look at the, the new designs for two leading car brand showrooms, one being Audi and one being Hyundai, their new branding involves every single showroom looking the same and they're all covered in ACP. There's no other products used. Mm. If you have a look at Audi supermarkets, their branding is 100% ACP. So commercial buildings haven't even been started to be looked at. Um, then you've got the Victorian Building Authority that only had the data from the building permits, which is misleading itself. And then they said that we've identified out of the 1,400, about 400 are at risk. Now, we deal a lot with building orders and emergency orders that are issued by their respective municipalities. So a municipal building surveyor issues a building order. It's a show cause order that says, you tell us why we should leave this cladding on there. Now, just to give you an idea, and I won't mention the council, there's one council just this year that's, I've got a building order on my desk that's building order 308. 308. Okay. And, that's, and that's just in that municipality. Wow. And that building surveyor and others, the municipal building surveyor, are employing now um, contractors that are building surveyors to walk around, literally walk the streets with a high vest, high um, vis vest, and look for buildings that have got cladding in them because... They haven't got that data. So there's going to be thousands of them. So the, the municipal building surveyor I just mentioned has got 300 himself and is rising. Um, there was only a pilot program that included Port Phillip, Moreland, Melbourne and two other councils. There was five pilot councils. The rest of the councils haven't really started looking at it either. If I was to explain it to you in a life cycle, in the last two years everyone's been talking about cladding and not doing much. 
in the last six months after the cladding task force interim report was released and the building surveyors started issuing the show cause notices there's probably around six months worth of audits that have been occurring so far however by the time all these building notices are issued it's going to be another year year and a half and then the audits will carry on for another year two years because there's no experts that can produce a report in the required time frame being 30 60 or 90 days that's what's specified by the building act so all building surveyors issue a um, extension straight away so as soon as we get the notice from an owner's corporation we apply for an extension which is granted 99% um, of the time and then it's you know it's a six month sort of process in the next year I just see all the audits occurring and all the audit data going back to the municipal building surveyors and then in the, the year following so financial year 19 and 20 I see the rectification actually occurring Rectification involves completely removing this cladding or are there other options? No, not completely removing. So there's um, options of engaging fire engineers like Roscon, which can give you performance solutions that will essentially, in a nutshell, reduce the risk of a fire spread. And that's what we're trying to do, have a safer building. The government themselves understand that complete rectification may not be possible where some facades just around the corner from RMIT, a price at over 20 million to replace. 20 million. And the mm. building was only constructed two years ago. May I ask, is that one with the... I can't comment on oh that, but um, that's, uh, that's correct. So um, over 20 million to replace. So, you know, you can see why this is a huge issue and why this is the first time where fire engineers will actually be engaged to look at pre-existing buildings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the fire engineering work at the start has always been um, for buildings that are going to be constructed or dwellings or commercial buildings that are going to be constructed. This will be one of the first instances where this is why we've moved into the market very quickly and we're doing a lot of the audits, is that we, we were originally in the owner's corporation industry. We've been around for 31 years now and, uh, and we've just been servicing the owner's corporation sector and we're trying to assist. So we understand that complete rectification is, is, is pretty much impossible. However, eliminating the risk of fire spreading. So as an, as an example, eliminating where there's ignition sources. So if there's aluminium composite panels on the ground floor, removing them. If there's aluminium panels that are covered in the entire building, putting in fire breaks. So replacing the product every one or two levels. So that way the fire does not spread and continue to rise vertically and horizontally. Um, there's a lot of other performance solutions extending sprinklers onto balconies, um, putting drenches onto balconies. There's um, a, a raft of issues that can be put in to um, stop the complete replacement of cladding. But is that bit getting signed off on by the authorities or, or is there still uncertainty about that strategy? Uh, very uncertain because um, the process first started off by completing a fire engineering report or just a response to the show cause. We've now learnt in the last uh, two or three months that that is not going to be appropriate. The municipal building surveyors don't want to carry any risk, so they want to go through the process of having um, following an international standard which involves completing a fire engineering brief and report, two separate documents. Essentially the brief identifies that there's non-compliant cladding and then how you're going to try and performance, put performance solutions in place to rectify it. 
and then the report actually addresses the brief. It's an international standard, however, all the ones that get put through to the Victorian Building Authority at the moment have been coming back that I've been seeing from other fire engineers to say, remove cladding. Um, now, if that's the case, the building orders shouldn't be going out there. It should just be emergency orders to say re replace because in the time where the building order gets sent out, you've got six months worth of audit trail, the owner's corporation spending, you know, sixty to $100,000 plus legal fees, and then you've been told to just replace the cladding. Mm. So what's the problem is, is that none of the government officials want to carry the burden to say, I signed off on one Swanson Street, Swanson Street, Melbourne, and um, that's going to be fine. So they just essentially don't want to carry that risk where the fire engineer is signing off and saying, I'm happy with this solution. And they're still coming back and saying, no, we don't agree. And part of that, I assume, is, is the fallout from Grenfell Towers, most famously, which is uh, in the UK and 75 people died in that fire. But locally, we've had a couple of fires that there were no people killed or even injured, I think, but they were noticeable. And so that possibility, the risk and the politicisation of that risk is nobody wants to touch it, I assume. Correct, yeah. So in Australia, our buildings are not built like the way Grenfell Tower was. We would never be able to construct or retrofit a building to the way that was completed. Um, we've got much stricter guidelines in place. Um, the two buildings that caught on fire in Melbourne, quite widely publicised, um, Anstey Square and also Lacoste. The fire engineering systems worked the Metropolitan Fire Brigade came, the fire was suppressed and it was actually a great news story for a fire engineer. The fire engineer there should actually be, get a pat on the back for the systems actually working. Um, however, in Australia everyone is anti-risk and they want nothing to go wrong. What people need to understand, and this is all the way to the government top level, is that a fire engineer's job is not to stop a fire, it's to stop it spreading. So a fire can arise, um, however, the fire engineer's job is to stop it spreading from, they call it SOU, sole occupancy units, so basically from dwelling to dwelling. And that was essentially done in both the fires in Melbourne, and the fire engineering there worked, and the emergency services worked. However, we're just really anti-risk here, so we don't want anything to go wrong. And hence the, the focus of the response, so to speak, seems to be, right, we've identified this product which some, it's still slightly mysterious to me how widespread it became when it when it seemed to be perhaps not quite right how it was being used. But we want absolutely to be able to stand up and say, we have stopped this thing now. Bulletproof. So yeah. how that actually plays out seems to be le less of a concern. I'm going to put in the disclosure here that I live in a building that is affected by this issue. But I would also say that I'm not alone there. How many people do you think are affected by this? Or just uh, it's, wild it's a hundreds of thousands. Like there's yeah. thousands, there's over a thousand buildings. Um, most of these buildings have over three to four hundred residents. Um, there's thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that are affected. However, we're we're still allowing that construction to occur. So you would have seen a media blitz from Daniel Andrews to say we're banning combustible cladding. That was only the polyethylene variety. Um, mm -hmm. If you read the fine print, it says that the 70% mineral product and 90% mineral product can still be used. However, both of them fail the Australian standard. So why are we still allowing it to be used? I provided advice to a Senate committee in Canberra. The, um, one of the recommendations was to ban the products. Um, well, there was a number of recommendations, obviously, to every Senate committee um, that they produce, and none of them 
recommendations have been followed. So, you know, we're, we're flying experts, we're flying doctors, QCs, lawyers all the way around Australia. Why are we doing it if none of the recommendations are going to be followed? The building industry is very powerful and has got an enormous amount of influence. So do you see this as a systemic issue around the building industry on a bigger scale? The biggest scale problems is, is that other products will start becoming as combustible because people will start, architects will start using alternate products. So as an example, around 10 years ago, no one would blink an eyelid when they saw mod wood or um, timber at the front of a building, uh, feature cladding. However, that is a combustible, so that's illegal itself. So now other products are being wound up into this mess. So mm-hmm. we're seeing building orders now being issued, not for aluminium composite panels or expanded polystyrene, however, feature cladding that's on a building as well. So because you basically have to have a completely concrete building to not... Well, that's it, or brick, <laughs> or glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, you know, that's the problem. So why are we allowing the products still to be used on facades that are over three stories that's a question to be asked there's products there's manufacturers that are rushing products out there now so a company that everyone knows called a luca bond um, has now started a product which is a solid aluminium we used solid aluminium in the 80s then it got phased out for composite now solid aluminium is going to be the new um, savior because essentially it's got no core, it's solid, and it won't burn, and it'll look exactly the same, and it's got the exact same properties of quick, cheap, easy to install, great for developers, everyone's a winner. However, we should be changing to them, and the government should be able to just say, we're banning these combustible products. Otherwise, we are going to keep having problems of combustibility by just different products that will enter the market. And there's so much construction going on. I guess that's this sort of perfect storm element to it as well, that these products come in, products, sorry, they become popular because they're cheap and there's so much building going on in Victoria for the last few decades, high-rise as well as, as on the fringes, that together they sort of, it might be containable if we weren't building so much, but we're building a lot and we're doing it on the fly. We're picking out what we're using based on what loopholes there are. Correct, and I think that um, the message isn't getting to the core, which is the builders. Um, you know, myself and yourself being desk bound, we we have access to um, we have access to Facebook, we have access to Google, all these things that we're looking at that interrupt our workday. Builders on the ground are building; they they don't have that much interruption. They're going home to their families. The education piece is not being done with the builders. Driving here today, as an example. I drove through a roundabout where there's a building being constructed, and I won't mention it again, that is completely aluminium composite panel. It messes with your head, doesn't it? It's like, and then, cladding, cladding, cladding. And when I started the drive, um, I saw buildings that have been constructed in the same municipality that has issued the 300 building notices out of complete polystyrene. And you think, are they not getting the message? Or can the building surveyor go around prior to anyone moving in and say, guys, this is not appropriate? But... Mm. um, yeah, unfortunately the message isn't getting through to the builders on the ground. The building surveyor is a point to, to bring up again. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, but there have been important changes to the building surveyors in Victoria. In the 1990s, they used to be entirely municipal and then yep. became privatised. Some people see that as creating an inbuilt sort of incentive, perhaps not to look too closely at things. Would you agree with that? Totally. So um, to give you an idea, of, we've mentioned even prior to the cladding fiasco starting... 
Um, we do building defect reports all the time. Cladding is a defect as well, but um, we've done them for years. Now, when we used to do a building defect report, we would ask for the occupancy permit. And the occupancy permit would normally have one or two dispensations, so things that can't be achieved from the National Construction Code mentioned on there. To give you an example, we're sitting in a heritage building today. It may not be able to have a disability ramp, um, or it may not be able to have a lift retrofitted. So that might be a, a dispensation that the building survey may issue. However, now when we have a look at occupancy permits, we're essentially faced with three or four pages of dispensations that are issued. And that is essentially because the, uh, the building surveyors aren't municipal anymore, you're correct. So I used to work at Melbourne City Council where there was a whole floor of building surveyors and they are wiped out and every single um, Every single council has now got one municipal building surveyor who can't do much. And now um, has 308. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's other items as well. So linked to municipal building surveyors is essential services, just to touch on it. So to give you an idea, I want, I want to bring a, a parallel in to try and explain it. it. Say every council or every person that runs a hamburger shop in the city knows that Melbourne City Council will be there once a year to do the health audit because they're appropriately resourced. There's enough health officers in every council. It's a big ticket item. Municipal building surveyors, I've just told you, have gone the other way where they've been cleared out. Now, every the municipal building surveyor is responsible for every single building in that council and they're responsible for checking the essential services items, the ESM items in every building. Every building needs to do an ESM report once a year. Do you think this one municipal building surveyor can check every single building's ESM report and ensure it's compliant? I'm telling you, no municipal building surveyors are checking ESM reports unless there's an actual problem that arises at a building. Mm. So this is a problem that we've got that local councils need to understand, um, that they need to resource municipal building surveyors. Um, or resource the building surveying department so it is as important as health and food because it is because people reside there and um, that's the only way we're going to start seeing some action in Australia we've got great regulation it's just not enforced mm. that's the, the problem the uh, correct in terms of the Victorian Building Authority the last three CEOs have come from a public service background um, the last one worked with me at Melbourne City Council, no building experience at all. New CEO, no building experience at all. We need people with some building experience. The auditors have got no building experience as well. Most of them are lawyers because they're um, investigators um, with no building experience and the builders just pull the wool over their eyes. Um, there's a stat out there that the Victorian Building Authority audits around 2% of construction. That's uh, that goes on. It needs to be a lot higher. Imagine you ordered two percent of hamburger joints. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's the exact point that I'm trying to make. Is that we have got the regulation. It needs to be enforced. And it is, I mean, extraordinary in the sense that there's so much money involved uh, in the building industry, so much construction, so much revenue, stamp duty, etc. To think that this is something that's not enforced appropriately does seem like a, the nexus is, is quite out there. There's obviously people making money from, the, from these materials, from this construction, and it doesn't translate through to enforcement. I suppose with the, I mean, accumulation of decades of um, political changes, etc., that they're making that the case, but we're seeing the consequences. 
Yeah, and a lot of it's got to do with the lobbying and the power as well, like you were saying. So as an example, I can use a public record case. So the Victorian Building Authority issued notices to fix, which is essentially telling a builder to do something um, to LU Simons. And LU Simons, there was around six notices to fix issued to LU Simons for six separate buildings. And that was to avoid the Onus Corporation going through the lengthy process of litigation, cladding reports, defect reports, going through VCAT. And um, essentially, LU Simons appealed that decision and won. Um, and that was based on a four or five line technicality in the Act that said that the Victorian Building Authority cannot issue a notice to fix after the building surveyor has issued the occupancy permit. So in simple terms, as soon as a construction is finished, the authority has got no authority. And the politician, someone wrote that act. It was actually our current politician, Richard Wynne, that uh, implemented uh, uh, implemented that a number of years ago to save the, uh, the building industry. Now, you would think that what actually happened in that case is that obviously... Um, this is a big ticket item for the building industry and builders. There was a lot of funds at stake. I've just given you an example of $20 million of facade. There was a lot of big builders that put money in together, hired the best QCs. There was three QCs that were representing LU Simons that were funded by the rest of the industry um, or LU Simons. And the Victorian Building Authority turned up with two lawyers from the Building Authority who are not barristers, who are just lawyers, who are not QCs and got, um, quite frankly, rolled. Um, and you would think that the Victorian Building Authority would put up a business case to say, we probably didn't attack it correctly, we didn't think how seriously our Simons would take this, let's appeal it. Um, but that appeal has not occurred, and to date, um, until the law changes, the Victorian Building Authority has got no authority. So it's, it's a, a funny name, actually, isn't it? <laughs> it's a uh, building thing. Yeah. Can we touch on, um, I mean, that's that's the extreme end, those uh, buildings that are going to court, but you're working with a lot of owners' corporations. One of them is mine. And I'm only grateful that our building is perhaps not as badly affected. But what is involved for the hundreds of thousands, possibly, of people that have this cladding and they've got a rectification issue? Who's paying... How long will it take? Sure. So we talked about the life cycle before. I think just to quite simply explain it, the rectification will start roughly in the middle of next year when all the reports are complete. Um, who's paying for it? At the moment, the government's pushed all the costs onto consumers. Um, they've made this uh, cladding rectification agreements um, that Richard Wynn's put out, which um, you would probably see in my comments yesterday in the financial review saying that it's not going to work. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. There's no funders on board. It's a very, it's a tripart agreement that needs to occur between councils, the lot owner, the owners corporation. It's it's way too complex when there's already mechanisms in place like strata loans. There's companies that just specialise in strata loans mm -hmm. that will not need to go through the the task of collating financial information for every lot owner in that building. So that the cladding rectification um, arrangements were essentially. Uh, a political, uh, you know, we're in an election year, um, they need to be shown as they're doing something, however that automatically just shows that they're pushing the cost onto consumers. Um, now people... And so the that, cost is roughly, you said $20 million, but it's, what's the range of cost? So we're seeing, when we divide it out with apartments, we're seeing anywhere between from $20,000 per apartment to $60,000 per apartment, depending on how that building was constructed. 
um, and where it is, traffic management issues, so on. So we've got a problem. So the time frame we're looking for rectification would probably be in the next three to four years. Um, insurers are, are putting up the premium, so it's harder for people like yourself that are living in buildings. You've got a lot of pressure from um, your owners' corporation committees trying to tackle it. However, the real uh, one of the real problems is the devaluation of buildings. So uh, with a building notice on there. Now I've heard of um, Lacoste, where a um, broker called me up, mortgage broker, and uh, just saw my name in publications and said, I just wanted to, had no idea, and just wanted to know how quickly can we resolve this? Mm. Um, and essentially the guts of the conversation was is that his client had paid a deposit, which was around 40K in the banks, none of the major banks were willing to settle. Um, and that deposit was lost. Mm. Now that will start occurring um, I just wanted to, if we can widely publicise that, that will start occurring a lot and consumers need to be aware and do some due diligence if the building has got cladding, has it got a building order on there. And the converse of that is you can't sell your apartment. Correct. So no bank settling on the apartment with cladding or a building order or very hard to settle. They're not settling on, none of the majors are settling at Lacoste to give an example. So I'd hate to think the amount of 40 or 60 grand deposits that are being handed out um, and how many times that one apartment has been sold that no one's been able to settle on. However, that I don't even want to think about that because it'll be hard to sleep. However, this is a realistic problem. It's devaluing um, apartment buildings, it's devaluing individual apartments, and it's making them impossible to sell. And it's in limbo. I mean, that's the thing that's really apparent is that it's not just that it's $20,000 or whatever. It's even the loan scheme bought in potentially seems from your description to be quite complicated and could take years anyway. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of requirements. So, you know, you have to have a 75% special resolution. Mm. Most people in these CBD apartments, to give you an idea, are overseas investors. You can't even get in touch with them overseas. Um, foreign nationals, so um, very hard to get in touch with them, let alone get a resolution that says we've got 75% of 400 apartment owners saying go ahead. Um, Can I ask... Yeah. I mean, this is something that's been asked of me a few times, and, and I think it's, it's you've probably been working in this area so long that you forgot to even ask it, but <laughs> why isn't this sort of issue covered by either insurance or the builders themselves? So that was another great government stunt. So what happened there was um, people may be aware of the HIA insurance collapse back in the day. Um, so that was a first resort insurance that people could access if there was any problems with their building. Now, when HIA collapsed, what essentially happened was that the big builders once again lobbied, and I've got transcripts of that, that say they lobbied the government to say anything over three storeys will not be covered by the new warranty insurance, which is administered through VMIA, is the company. Now, any buildings that are under three storeys, it's now no longer first resort, it's last resort, so you've got to go through the prosecution with the builder um, if you're under three storeys. So one one big hurdle is it's only valid to up to three storey high buildings. The second hurdle is the builder has to be DDI, they call it, dead, disappeared or insolvent. So what most lawyers push for, and it costs the owners corporation a lot of money, is to push the builder insolvent or to fold that company. However, we hope that no builders die, we're not in it for that. Um, the disappearing one you can't rely on because the other party will turn up and say, we've found Elizabeth, she's hiding in you know, Swanson Square at RMIT one day before the hearing, 
and the insolvency is what people rely on. So it costs a lot of money to go down that path and that's only for buildings up to three storeys. Once you've spent all the money getting the builder insolvent, then you can go to home warranty insurance and it's covered up to three storeys. The problem that we're seeing now is that all the buildings that have got the cladding over the three storeys um, and can't push their builders insolvent is builders are going insolvent themselves. So I was quite widely publicised last year on the ABC saying that um, uh, uh, tier one builders, so your larger building companies, will go into liquidation this year. And the first one has started. So Hickory Group has put H Building Group into liquidation. Um, and essentially there was a number of cases going to VCAT against Hickory. And now they are full on the floor. There's no one to get compensation from. There's no home warranty insurance. There's no last resort insurance. It's essentially at the time when it was set up up to three stories, in the transcripts it actually says that there will be another system set up for larger buildings. However, the lobbying kept occurring and nothing happened. So um, unfortunately, the government's got itself to blame for that one and the consumers are the ones paying the price. So what would, to wrap up, that, that's where we're at. It's, it's quite um, a black hole, I think, of uh, <laughs> governance decisions that, that have gotten us to this point. In a sense, you stand to, to make quite a lot of uh, business out of this situation, but what would you like to see change and what power do you think the government has to change something that would be perhaps fairer, more efficient, safer, etc. What that isn't happening? Sure. So in terms of the, the business side of things, we've been in business for 30 years and we've been doing quite well without the cladding, so we're not in it for the cladding side of things, although we're assisting owners corporations, which are our existing clients. However, what we really need to do is put in a mechanism where there is home warranty insurance for every single new build that gets put up. Um, so the laws need to change there. And then we need to ban combustible products on buildings. Um, that's as simple as that. And uh, we'll have a much safer and happier place. And uh, people will be able to transact apartments as they, as they should. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening, but we are coming out for an election. Um, so that's been a very, um, I think, only scratching the surface in a, sen in a sense. <laughs> I could talk for hours. Journey <laughs> <laughs> into the black hole that is combustible cladding. I think for listeners who are interested in how badly governance deregulation can, can go wrong in, in building industries, you can look to New Zealand for the uh, leaky building syndrome is perhaps an example that we're looking at. Asbestos is broadly comparable, I suppose, as well. Um, but we're seeing it unfold, and I think the number of people involved, the amount of money involved, it's probably uh, going to be a, a reality for quite a few years to come. That's quite depressing. But even so, it's interesting from a point of view of uh, understanding how Melbourne's changing. Even just, this is all tied up with intensification and the move towards high-density housing. I think there's a really, really perfect storm here. I mean, some of the laws seem specifically designed to make it harder for high-density housing. So some of the insurance laws and, and things like that. But I'd like to thank you for your time, Sahil. And, thank you for um, having me. Look forward to hearing more from you on cladding as we move forward. Thank you. Thanks everyone, you've been listening to This Must Be The Place.